I think it's been said a couple times, but I'm going to say it again. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, the busy season is over. How many of you, after January 1st, just had to go? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. In fact, I'm still exhaling a little bit because um, life has been exceptionally crazy. Well, obviously, uh, Pastor Dave and Margot are not here today, but no worries. They're, they're um, just hanging out in St. Lucia, uh, enjoying an anniversary getaway. And so uh, as, as, you be, as you're thinking about them, just pray for their trip and pray for a time of uh, fellowship between the two of them as they reflect on 20 years of marriage, uh, a time for them to um, be restored and, and made whole and just kind of get away from everything that happens uh, within ministry uh, over a week. And so, um, and, and uh, Dave was actually uh, texting me this morning, and I just kind of ignored him, like, go, uh, go enjoy your time there. So, um, starting a new series today. How many of you guys watched the promo video? Ooh, well, we got to do some work. How many of you guys, after watching it, are pretty excited about, like, where we're going with our next series? Yeah, okay, good. All right, guys, we're going to get on Facebook, and we got to look at the promo videos. Okay, they're really good. So our next series is the Abundant Life series. And so we kind of, we kind of um, highlighted this and foreshadowed this um, at our Christmas Eve service. Um, but this essentially is going to be an overview over the next eight weeks of the heart of 1010 community. We talk a lot about Abundant Life here, um, mainly because our name's 1010, right? And... And we've, we, we've derived our name from John 10.10. How many of you guys have heard that, like, a lot now? Like, so many times that you can even repeat it back. Come on, give it to me. What is it? What's John 10.10? Mm. All right, let's try it one more time. Come on, let's get louder about it. Let's be confident. Ready? All right, Nate, let's put that verse up there because we just need to, we need to have a visual aid here, okay? Here we go. Let's say this all together because this is a verse that is so vitally important for many reasons outside of it being the reason we're called John 10.10 10 and the reason that, well, our vision statement mentions the fact that we want to pursue abundant life. So let's read this together one more time. Ready? Everybody in unison, go. The thief comes... Good job, guys. It's a good thing when we all speak Scripture out loud together. It's a practice that they used many years ago, and somehow, somewhere along the line, um, it became focused that the person up here did all the talking, and you guys just got to kind of play spectator. So this is good. We're, we're speaking the Word of God out loud, and uh, I'm sure our retention on that verse, we're going to remember that um, this week. And so the reason I want you guys to know that verse is specifically because we have a vision statement um, that Nathan's going to put up there for me. And it's just really important that you know the vision of 1010. Most of you guys have been here long enough, you might have even seen this, but this is, this is it. This is why we, we exist. This is our purpose. We are people who pursue and point people to abundant life in Jesus Christ. That's really simple, right? We just pursue abundant life. And then as we're pursuing abundant life, we say, hey, 
I want to show you how to do that too. In John 10.10, Jesus says um, that he came to give us life and give it abundantly. And, and that word abundantly, it's, it's really special because, one, it's the only time that Jesus ever uses that word. It's the only time that he uses that adverb to describe something. He's describing life. So that's pretty important because life encompasses everything. So when he makes such a huge claim like that, he's not just saying... I came so I can impact this small corner of your life that you're willing to give to me and give it to you abundantly. He's saying, I'm going to impact your entire life. I'm going to do it abundantly. And so that word abundantly actually in the Greek is perisos. We don't need to know that. It's not something I'm going to have you repeat. But here's what's important. That word abundant means beyond and extraordinary. Jesus said, I came to give you an extraordinary life. I came so that your life would be beyond what you can even imagine. I came so that you would experience a, a life beyond what the world will experience. And as I make that statement, we should already be feeling, to some extent, the rub with the fact that Jesus made that statement. Because all the time, through different avenues, marketing, Facebook, commercials, life in general, we see people that are out there saying, if you want to have a better life, buy this. Do this. Become a part of this group. Get this new phone. That's going to give you more life. And yet Jesus says, I have come to give you an extraordinary life. So I have to ask a question because I believe in audience participation. How many of you are excited about hearing more about how to find this abundant life in Jesus? Right? It's easy to say, yeah, exactly. Most of us are interested. We even want to hear about it. We want to know about it. We probably even heard it taught in church before. But it's one thing to say, hey, Jesus said this, and so, like, we should just experience it, right? But I think that's, that's a little, um, that would be a little prideful to think that that would just happen that quickly. Um, just because of our general state as humans. And so I don't, uh, as, as we, back when we, when we merged, and it was LifePoint and Emmanuel, and then we came together, and we became 1010, we actually forged um, forged what we called our core values. And so um, what we're going to do over the next maybe seven, eight weeks is we're actually going to go through and we're going to discuss our core, core values. Now, I think the important thing to understand with core values is that they inform why we live the way we do, one. And two, um, they work together. It's not just like one core value. If you follow that one, that the rest of them are going to kind of come in line. No, the reason we're starting this morning with the topic that we're going to start with is because it actually is probably, uh, as we look at, as we kind of look at the flow of things, the most important thing that we that we grasp, the most important concept that we get. 
And so we're going we're gonna to jump in. Um, Nate, do you have the core values slide up there? So just for you guys' reference, so you understand what core values are, they're just principles we strive to live by in order to achieve abundant living. That's, that's the way that we look at it. So we have our vision, and in order to achieve our vision, we have some core values that we believe here at 1010 that if we live by, we will be able to see our vision come to fruition. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about this morning is finding abundant life through the core value of authenticity. And we define that as the freedom to be real. I was reading an article as I was kind of looking up, like, to the topic of authenticity. You hear it an awful lot. It's actually like a, it's actually a term that millennials have kind of coined and, and have said that they're, like, actively pursuing. And so, you know, obviously when that happens, like, Relevant Magazine writes an article about it, right? And so I, I was reading the article, and the author said this. The, the author's name is Stephen McAlpin, and, and he wrote this. I think the cry for authenticity stems out of the reality that we're a generation let down by previous ones. Past ideals don't work for us. We're fed up with wearing masks and hiding the truth about ourselves in an effort to blend in because it starves our hearts and leaves us empty. We crave a place and people we can be our true selves and be truly loved. We're crawling out from bushes and searching for more. We're calling others out to do the same thing too and are creating new standards for relationships. However, so like everything he said, man, that's super idealistic, right? But then he comes back, and that, but then he ends it, right? And he says, however, the quest for meaning isn't met without challenges. Authenticity itself is hard to define, and because of that, it's even harder to find in churches. You look in the Greek, if you actually look in the Bible, you will never see the word authenticity written. You will never see it. But what you will find are its synonymous friends, genuine and sincere. They all have the same meaning. If you look one up, you'll see the other as its definition and vice versa. And so when we look at the Greek version of the word authenticity, what that word actually means is to be without hypocrisy. So here's the interesting thing. As we look in the Bible, Jesus typically doesn't talk about the things we're doing well. In fact, he came and went against the grain basically from the time he started his, started his, um, his ministry to the time he left. So Jesus didn't walk around talking about how to live an authentic life. But what he did do was he walked around and he talked about how not to live. And so as we look at this, this without hypocrisy, we realize that there's a lot of scripture in the Bible that talks about hypocrisy. In fact, Jesus um, talks about hypocrisy quite often. And so in order to understand authenticity as the definition of without hypocrisy, we have to understand what hypocrisy is to understand what it's not, to be able to view it in its correct lens. And so if you look up the Greek for uh, hypocrisy, uh, it's, it's hypocrisy is the, is, the, is the word, but what it means is to be play acting, to be performing behind a mask. And so when we hear that, we obviously can sit here and agree, I think, 
maybe nod your head and make sure I'm, I'm trying to make sure everyone's still awake that that hypocrisy when we hear the definition is most definitely the 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 rival of authenticity if authenticity is to be real then hypocrisy is is the complete opposite it's to be acting it's to not be the real you My first memory of hearing the term hypocrisy, um, and, and, and more commonly, we'll hear, the, we'll hear the word hypocrite, right? Such a nasty word, right? Like every time you hear it, yeah, I just kind of like cringe. But first time I, I ever heard it was, was from my grandma. And um, I can remember her having a conversation, and um, she was having a conversa- conversation with somebody about some sad revelation about somebody who they viewed as super religious, but then a bunch of dirt came out, and in the midst of that conversation, the word hypocrite was used. It was my first time, and I was very aware of the fact that it was a negative thing. In fact, I was very aware that you did not want to be labeled as that. So every other time that I've heard hypocrisy, hypocrite, I've actually kind of strayed away and, and avoided really spending the time to investigate and, and to really look at the true, um, the true nature of what hypocrisy is. So as, I was, as I've been going through and investigating this, I realized that as a youth, I lived most of my youth life and my time in the church in a, in a state of hypocrisy. I knew about Jesus. I confessed him as my savior. I was even on a youth leadership team at 15, so that was like pretty cool. Sang in praise and worship, went on missions trips, and I was even asked to preach a few times in front of the youth group at 15, which was, you know, not everybody gets that opportunity. But when I wasn't at church, or wasn't around my church friends, I indulged in evil desires of my heart. I felt like my friends and the people in my church were the eyes of God, and they were the ones that were actually able to see me and see me for, for what I was. So when I was around them, I acted a certain way because it was really important to me that, that they gave me the self-worth that I was looking for and valued me as I wanted to be valued. But as soon as they weren't around, I was back to being the real me. It wasn't until after my, what I call my true conversion that, that I realized that everything that I was doing as a youth was a, a big facade. It was, it was a big fake. Um, and that my hypocrisy was actually a, a learned behavior that stemmed from a form of religiosity and legalism. So that's a lot there, but essentially what it means is when you go to church, you learn very quickly how you're supposed to act and you, ver- you learn very quickly how you're not supposed to act. And there's a learned behavior that occurs when we step into church. And I felt when I was a youth that my, and with my desire for acceptance, it came from trying to be valued by others. And so when I went there, I wanted them to value me. And because I learned that behavior, that legalism and that religiosity and the way that I was supposed to be, I needed their acceptance, so I acted the way that I was taught to behave. But it really didn't stem from any true transformation that occurred in my heart. 
Because as soon as I walked out the door, I was off doing something completely different. You, you would not have known that I knew Jesus. Are we getting a pretty clear glimpse of hypocrisy? Like, like I'm sharing my dirt, so this should make you guys feel, feel a little bit more comfortable, right? I think if we take a moment to reflect and contemplate, we would agree that we've all probably experienced putting on a mask for one reason or another. Maybe it's at work where you are confronted with an opportunity to witness about how you have been praying for something and God showed up. But when the moment presents itself for you to actually share the testimony of how God showed up and how God did something amazing for you, you decide not to share out of fear. Maybe it's in your marriage when you were at home um, and you hardly talked or connected with your wife, but when you come to church, you act like your marriage is amazing. And you put on the mask of a happy home and a happy marriage. I'm sure, I'm sure almost everybody here who has children can relate to this. How many of us have been in a car on the way to church and the car becomes a war zone? Like it is like World War III breaks out. The kids are screaming, coffee spills on you, somebody's giving you the finger in the next lane over, right? And then you show up and you're like, I love Jesus. No, I'm frustrated. I had a bad morning. My kids are driving me insane. My wife doesn't understand me. We learn a behavior that when we show up, we have to be like, Jesus. But that's not who God wants us to be. That's fake. That is not authentic in any way. You will never experience abundant life living out of that learned behavior because you will never be the person God designed you to be when you don't deal with the real things that he's trying to show you through those situations. So like I said, it's really interesting when you read the Bible, you don't actually see some place in there where it says, like, it doesn't have like a bumper sticker slogan where it's like, live authentically. And yet, when we, when we truly look at the way that Jesus worked, we see that he was showing us how to have the authentic life by going against the grain and completely attacking the thing which would keep us from having an authentic life. Y'all can turn to your Bibles to Romans 7, 15 through 20. They're going to be up on the screen as well. So if you don't want to flip, I like to go through Scripture a lot. So I always try to make sure that we have Scriptures up there for you so you can see them. <clears throat> Here's point number one. Actually, put this point up there, Nathan. If you're taking notes, point number one for, for this morning is emotional unhealthiness suppresses our ability to be authentic. If you're a note taker, this is an important one to get down. Emotional unhealthiness suppresses our ability to be authentic. I'm going to tell a personal story on this one because 
That's just what we do. We don't preach out of somebody else's life. We preach out of our own. So um, maybe about a month ago now, I began, I picked up a book that I had not picked up for like a year. And it was, and it was uh, Emotionally Healthy uh, Leadership. And I began to work through some of it. And one of the things that it challenged me to do was to go through and do a genogram. So anybody who's been through Margot's class, you've done this. Um, you go through a genogram, and you look back in your past to your parents and their parents, and then you begin to line up and look for any patterns of abuse that might have occurred in that lineage, whether it's abuse that you may have experienced, mental, physical, verbal, or sexual, and you go through and you make and you do this genogram. And I did my genogram, and holy cow, did it reveal a lot to me. It reviewed it, it revealed a ton about a lot of my actions. And it revealed to me that I have I had a lot of emotional unhealth, a lot of emotional baggage that I had never dealt with, didn't even know I needed to deal with it when I filled that out. There was a history of verbal abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse in the family. And for me to live most of my life not being aware of that, even though it may not have directly been towards me, I did, recip I did receive some parts of that abuse through the line. And so what happened was, I want to read Romans 7, 15 through 20, was it answered a lot of questions about, about what Romans 7, 15 through 20 says. It says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I've read that verse so many times, so many times. And when I read that verse, I always thought about it as, holy cow, that is just, that is just an excuse for somebody to keep on sinning until... I, re I reflected on that verse, and the Holy Spirit revealed that to me in light of me looking at my genogram and realizing, hey, a lot of the things that you are doing is out of a, is out of, is out of a sin nature that you don't even understand. But when the Holy Spirit revealed that to me, it allowed me to do something about it. It allowed me to make a change. The point of all this is that we all have areas of emotional unhealth that we have to deal with. So slight promo from Argo, but I'm sure she's going to do another class. Jump in. Jump in and do it, and don't be afraid. Because if we're going to be a community of authenticity, we need to be emotionally healthy. We don't want to suppress our authenticity. We want to become more and more real with one another. That's how we build real community. So what happens sometimes when we have this period of emotional unhealth 
this is how it kind of plays out, right? We, we have emotional unhealth. We don't really understand it. And then what happens is, like, Ephesians 4, 25 through 28 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each, let each one of you speak the truth with the neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give opportunity to the devil. What happens is we have this emotional thing, this emotional baggage, this thing we haven't dealt with, and it causes us to be angry. And then as we sit there in our anger, we begin to allow just this open foothold for Satan to continually beat and beat and beat and beat and beat on us. Because we never deal with the emotional things that are in our life. Does this make sense to you guys? And we don't understand what's going on. It causes us to be inauthentic. It causes us to, to, to live almost like in a, hypocr- in, a, in a hypocritical way. It's not even like we're trying to. The good news is, is that Ephesians 4.25 says that when we are emotionally healthy, the thing that we do is we put away falsehood. So we, put on, we take off the mask and we go to somebody, a neighbor or somebody that we trust or somebody that we know loves us, and we're real with them. And we say, hey, I'm angry. I'm angry with you. I'm angry about this. This makes me mad. You figure it out. You pray about it. You give it to the Lord. And you know what? The foothold is closed. There's no way for Satan to enter in. He doesn't want you to know that because he's a master of deception. He wants you to live out of that continually. He wants to keep giving you those little jabs in the side. This is very similar to when we talked about uh, the lie that you are not enough, right? You are not enough. So because you're not enough, then you try to be somebody else that you think is enough. He keeps lying to you and lying to you and beating you up, being deceptive. Second point, authentic lives don't care about appearance. This comes from Matthew 23, 25 through 28. It says, this is from Jesus, right? He is addressing his disciples and the crowd, which include the Pharisees, okay? What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. When we think about appearance, that includes everything. That includes what we want people to see. And the Pharisees were the best at doing this, right? They knew the scriptures better than anybody. They were better dressed than anybody. They had power. They had prestige. And on the outside, 
from people that were looking from the outside. They had it going on. But inside, there was a whole lot of turmoil. There was a whole lot of hypocrisy. Because who they portrayed was not who they were. They spoke the scriptures, but they only spoke them so they could, so they could condemn people. So they could hold people down. So they could abuse them and allow, and allow themselves to be elevated through that abuse. One of the best parts of that scripture there, it says the outside does not determine the inside. The inside determines the outside. It says something about our heart when we think that our outside appearance can affect our inside appearance. The moment that you recognize that you might be doing that is the moment where you should stop and check. If you look disheveled, like, no offense, I get it. Like, we live in a society where culturally it's like, let's get yourself fixed up. But if you're truly disheveled and having an awful time, we want you to live authentically. Be willing to be vulnerable in that way so that somebody can come in and help you to fix the inside. That's a lot of times how we try to serve, right, in the church the outward movement. We try to fix the outside, but what really needs help is the stuff that's on the inside. That's a tough one, right? We're like, well, I, I, I gave somebody fresh water. Well, their body's fed, but what about their soul? It's a tough one for me to consider. I'm, I'm not saying these things because because I'm, I'm being condemning. I'm saying it because I'm considering, like, I'm considering these things. I'm considering my own way of life and how I have approached, you know, my outward movement, the way I'm trying to help people. Sometimes the best thing isn't the physical thing, but the spiritual thing, the spiritual work that can be done inside. There's a story about, about um, Samuel uh, when he went to anoint King David as king. Such a, it's such a great picture of this, of this concept of the outside does not determine the inside. It said in Sam, uh, 1 Samuel 1 through 7, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him for being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Elab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So the very first person that came before Samuel was Eliab. And he thought because he was the older of all the brothers, the strongest of all the brothers, the outward appearance would have said, this is the one the Lord's going to pick. This is the one that surely is going to be anointed by the Lord. But 
verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When we try to fix our outside appearance, it shows that we don't really understand who our God is. He never once looked on the outside. He's always ever cared about the inside. And so somehow, I don't know how we get confused about this, but we think by fixing up the outside and making it pretty and making it look the way that the world says is the way it should look for us to be doing well, is the way that we're supposed to be. But God says, I look on the inside. He picks David, the runt of the group. Becomes the greatest king the nation of Israel had ever seen. He probably would have picked the wrong person. I know I would have. Give me the biggest, the strongest take my chances. Use my logic and take my chances. Brings me to, Nathan, I'm skipping to point number four here. Authenticity is grounded by a healthy fear of the Lord. Point three is so beautifully like introduced by point two. Because when we have a healthy fear of the Lord, that means that we have a healthy knowledge of who our God is. And when we have a healthy knowledge of who our God is, we have a healthy knowledge that he doesn't care about appearances. He doesn't care about the, the outside. He only cares about what's on the inside. Proverbs 1.7 says, For the fear of the Lord is the foundation of all knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. I've been having conversations with, with people for about a month and a half about this scripture specifically because... There's something in our, in our culture, something in our church culture, uh, in the American church culture, that says that when we come into church, we want to skip to chapter 22 of the book. We want the fix. We want it to happen right now. We need to be, bam, different. And that's when we go and we make outward appearance changes that are seemingly the fix. But we forget about chapter 1 that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. Nothing else can happen before the fear of the Lord. Authenticity is grounded by a healthy fear of the Lord. We have a lot of discussions in church, and I'm sure that most of us probably have had this, where the fear of the Lord is really described in, like so, in many different ways. It can be described as um, like an awe or reverence, which, which is good. But anytime you look in the Bible at times when people have encountered God, there's just something different that all and reverence doesn't describe. The way they fall at, at, at the feet of the Lord, the way they can't even pick their head up because they know they're just not worthy. They just can't even look at him. Anytime anyone came into the presence of God, they came with fear and trembling. We 
When's the last time you came into the presence of the Lord with fear and trembling? When's the last time that you realized the bigness of the God that we serve? I bet he could make everything evaporate. Start back over. When's the last time we prayed with a healthy fear of the Lord for something we really wanted in our life? Lord, I really want that promotion. Lord, I really want you to heal my relationships. Lord, I have this emotional thing that I can't get over. Lord, I really, I really want you to do it. Because it's one thing to pray the prayer. There's a level of faith to that. There's another part of that that says you realize who you're praying to. There's a healthy fear of the Lord that brings about authenticity. It's scary to pray big prayers because what it makes you do is it makes you go out on a limb that you don't like to be in. You don't want to be out there because just what if he doesn't show up? Or what if we remember who our God is and say, what if he does? We'll never know till we get to the end of the limb, till we pray the big prayer, till we challenge our faith. Luke 12, 1 through 7. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another. So picture this. So many people had gathered that they were actually like, stomp, like think of like a mosh pit. They're just trampling on one another. So many people. Massive crowds. He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. We just got to stop real quick right there. Did you read that? Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Jesus is saying it's never been my, my, my desire or my father's desire for you to hide. In fact, you don't even have to hide because I already know. So maybe the people around you don't know what I know, but one day everything will be known. So we get to make a choice with a statement like that, right? We get to make a choice to come into a, to an area of authenticity that's really scary, really scary, and trust that God's going to work it out, or we stay behind the mask and continue to live lives that aren't abundant like Jesus wants us to have. Let's read the rest of this real quick. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and now and that you have whispered in private rooms shall be pro proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Are you not, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Are not one of them, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be, will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus is saying, your decision as to whether or not you bring things into the light stems from your fear of the Lord, your healthy fear of who he is. The fact that even though it looks like he might not be able to do something, he can. He's all-powerful. He's yesterday, today, and forever. He's been there, done that. He's going to do it again. If he's done it before, he can do it again. And if his word backs it up, it's his desire to do it. So why should we be afraid to ask for it? Why should we, why should we be afraid to remove the mask? We're going to have the worship team come up, close here.